Well, it's always a blessing to be able to open God's Word together and to receive from the Lord what He would have uh, to speak to us. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please open up to the book of Acts, chapter 19. I have my Bible with me, but it's over there. Um, Would you mind? Thank you very much. Uh, It's been a few weeks, obviously, with the Easter break since we've been together in in the book of Acts, and it is my intention to start um, a special series uh, dealing with the spiritual gifts coming up this month. Uh, And so this week and next, we'll, uh, Lord willing, complete the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, and then we'll take a break from the book of Acts and we'll spend... Uh, a number of weeks uh, looking at the subject of spiritual gifts. Uh, Lord willing, starting in a couple of weeks' uh, time, but give you some more specifics about that uh, next week. But the passage before us this morning in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, uh, is quite a a, a famous passage, one of the better-known passages in Uh, the book of Acts, is the account of what is commonly referred to as the riot at Ephesus. The riot at Ephesus. Uh, And it's a passage that, amongst other things, uh, encourages us uh, in the area of persecution, in the area of opposition that comes against us when we commit our lives to serving the Lord. Now, Uh, Before we get into our text, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts, so I'd just like to uh, set uh, our chapter in its wider context in the book of Acts. Uh, If we go all the way back to the Gospels, of course, uh, the Gospels concluded with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, He died on the cross to pay the penalty uh, for our sins, and he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, proving Uh, that the price and the penalty for our sins had been paid, and indeed proving that all power and authority belonged to him. Then 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, But before he ascended into heaven, Jesus gave uh, his disciples a commission and a promise. Uh, The commission was to go to all the nations and to preach the gospel and to make disciples. They were to start in Jerusalem, where they were. They were to go out from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions of Judea, further afield to Samaria, and then even on to the ends of the earth. That was the commission. But the commission uh, came with a promise. Uh, And the promise was that God would supply all the power and the ability that they needed to accomplish that task, and he would do so uh, through uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles and indeed every believer subsequently in Jesus Christ. Uh, And so then the book of Acts uh, follows uh, the apostles of Jesus Christ as they set about uh, that task that Jesus had given them. And the first half of the book of Acts, generally speaking, followed the ministry of the apostles Peter 
and John, uh, as they ministered in Jerusalem, in the surrounding area of Judea, and even into Samaria. Uh, And then the second part of the book of Acts, in which we are in uh, now, follows primarily the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who who then takes the gospel further afield uh, to the area of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, into Europe, as the gospel begins to go to the ends of the earth, uh, fulfilling the command and the promise uh, that Jesus had given. And so the Apostle Paul, uh, he based himself at the church in the city of Antioch. Antioch in Syria, about 300 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. And it was from there that the Apostle Paul went out on a number of missionary journeys, taking the gospel uh, through the rest of the Roman uh, Empire. Uh, and here in Acts uh, chapter 19... Uh, We are with Paul on his third missionary journey, a journey which has led him to the city of Ephesus, the great ancient city of Ephesus. Uh, And in the first part of chapter 19, we were told that Paul spent at least two years there ministering in the city of Ephesus, uh, considerably longer than uh, normal for Paul to spend uh, in a city on his missionary journeys. Uh, And he probably stayed there so long because there was so much work to be done because so many people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus and indeed the surrounding regions. And if you recall, uh, we looked at that in our last study in the book of Acts several weeks ago. Uh, But if I just point out to you and remind you uh, verse 20 in which Luke summarizes what happened there in the book of Acts over that two-year period. In verse 20, Luke tells us that the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. In other words, God did an amazing work in the city of Ephesus as the word of God was proclaimed, as the gospel of Jesus Christ was declared. People were responding by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, People were beginning to grow in the knowledge uh, of Jesus Christ. They were being transformed by the renewing of their minds. They were starting to live lives that bring glory to God, and they started to impact the lives of those uh, around them. Truly, in Ephesus, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Uh, And that's quite a wonderful thing, Uh, a glorious thing, in fact. I mean, who on earth could object to something like that taking place in a city? Well, many people. There are many who would object. In fact, here in the city of Ephesus, there were many who did object. And they came against the church in the city of Ephesus. And it's a reminder to us that any time that we commit our lives to following Jesus, Anytime we commit ourselves wholeheartedly to serving the Lord and step out in faith and obedience to do the things that he has commanded us, there will be opposition come against us. And that opposition can come from a variety of places. It can come from the world around us. People uh, can be hostile to us. People can make fun of us. They can mock us, so on and so forth. Those attacks can be spiritual in nature. We know Satan uh, rises up 
against the people of God when the people of God rise up to step out in faith to serve the Lord. There are spiritual attacks that come against us. There are times in which circumstances just seem to go crazy in our lives. And, you know, maybe you've experienced that. You know, you have this renewed commitment to serve the Lord and you're excited and you go out and all of a sudden all these things start happening. And this goes wrong and that goes wrong and this happens and that happens and you think, what on earth's going on? And when we find ourselves in that kind of a situation, when it becomes quite challenging and hard to follow and serve the Lord, the temptation then is to think, well, you know what? This is just too difficult. This is just too hard. I'm not really sure if it's worth it. I think I'm going to stick with what's easy. I think I'm just going to carry on and live my life. But you see, that is surrender. God wants us to live lives of victory. And those are the only two ways the battle can end. When we step out in faith to serve the Lord, when we commit our lives to serving him, opposition will come. We recognize we are entering into a battle. And battles only end one of two ways. I either give up and surrender or I fight and win. (laughs) The temptation is always to give up and surrender. God calls us to fight and win. And moreover, God gives us the power we need to gain the victory because that victory has already been won in and through Jesus Christ who died for our sins and conquered sin and death when he rose from the dead. And so the lesson of our passage this morning And I suppose the encouragement for all of us, wherever we're at in our Christian lives, is to renew our commitment to serving the Lord wholeheartedly. To get serious about our relationship and our walk with the Lord. Knowing and accepting the fact that opposition is going to come. Circumstances may do all sorts of things. Things may go crazy for a time. But we don't have to be afraid and we don't have to worry and we don't have to surrender and give up because God will supply the strength and the power we need. God will bring us through the difficulties, the circumstances, all the things that surround us and God will give us the victory if we keep going, if we press on and if we do so in faith trusting and depending upon him. And so, let us read our passage. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21. It's quite a lengthy passage, but it's a very interesting story. And so we're going to read it all the way through, 21 through uh, 41. Uh, so stay with it. It's, uh, they could turn this into kind of like a film, I think. Uh, and so... Verse 21, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. 
For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this tirade trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theatre with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, uh, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not adventure into the theatre. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defence to the people. But when they all found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! <coughs> and when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a cause against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for the disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Father, we thank you for your word uh, this morning. We ask now as we have your word open before us, uh, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit would have to say to us today. Uh, Father, I pray through your word that you would speak into each and every one of our hearts in a very real, in a very meaningful way. Father, we know your word does not return void, but Lord, we pray that you would give us humble hearts, hearts to receive what you have to say to us. Father, I just pray that this morning's time in your word would be a great time of encouragement, would be a great time of blessing, and indeed a great time of challenge for all of us in the lives that you have called us to live. And so we thank you for your word this morning, uh, and we give you praise, honor, and glory as we ask you to bless your word to each of our hearts. 
In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before Paul gets into, uh, before Luke rather, gets into the account of the riot that takes place there in the city of Ephesus, in verses 21 and 22, he gives us a few notes uh, about the Apostle Paul's upcoming travel plans. Uh, Look at verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Uh, In other words, after the two years Paul had spent ministering in Ephesus, where the word of God had grown mightily uh, and prevailed, after the Lord had done this great work there in the city of Ephesus and a church had been established, Paul purposed in the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Uh, And so Paul purposed in his heart uh, that it was time Uh, to leave Ephesus. It was time to move on to the next uh, stage of his ministry. Uh, And so he had uh, his plans mapped out. He was going to return to Greece uh, from Ephesus, sail over the water again. He was going to go to Achaia, which is in the south where Corinth and Athens were. He would go to Macedonia in the north where Philippi uh, and Thessalonica were. And then he would head back to Jerusalem. Um, And Uh, The reason, incidentally, um, that he went to Greece and to visit those churches uh, was to collect an offering uh, from those churches to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. And we find that in other portions of Scripture, piecing it together. The church of Jerusalem was struggling, uh, and so he was going to bring a a love offering to bring back to encourage and bless uh, the church uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, But that sort of travel agenda really gives us um, the map of where the rest of the book of Acts is going. Because we'll see after chapter 19 when Paul leaves uh, Ephesus and he goes to Macedonia and he goes to Achaia and he heads back to Jerusalem, uh, Paul said that the one thing he wanted to do was to go to Rome. Uh, And that's exactly what happens in the rest of the book. He leaves Ephesus He goes to Macedonia, he goes to Achaia, he heads back to Jerusalem, and then he travels to Rome. The only thing is, is his traveling to Rome wasn't quite as he'd expected it to be, because Paul got arrested, and he traveled to Rome as a prisoner, um, as he ultimately appealed uh, to Caesar. And the book of Acts closes with Paul under house arrest uh, in Rome in Acts chapter 28. But that's all uh, to come. At the beginning in verse uh, 23, then, we see that about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. And so I'm just going to divide this text, the narrative, just into three sections as we go through. Maybe it'll help us just follow along. Verses 23 through 27 uh, give us the causes of the riot. The causes of the riot. Because verse 23 tells us that there arose a great commotion about the way. A commotion, a disturbance, a a trouble, a a riot. And not just any trouble or disturbance, a great one. There arose a great disturbance in the city of Ephesus. Why? Well, it was all about the way. The way. Now, the way was one of the earliest terms used to describe Christians. They were followers of 
the way. It most likely came from the words of Jesus in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, And the way is a great way to describe Christianity. Because Christianity is not just a set of rules and regulations. It is not just a set of ideas and uh, principles. Rather, it is the way of salvation. It is the way to God. It is the way to live a life of worship unto the Lord. And so Christianity very much is the way. It is the way to all truth. And so, this disturbance, this riot arose because of the way. And beginning in verse 20. Uh, Four, we get some more details about what specifically it was that was causing this riot. Notice verse 24. A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Now we'll hold it there for a second little bit of background here. Ephesus was famous as a city in the Roman Empire as a center of religion, a center of pagan religion. And at the heart of the religious life of the city of Ephesus was the great temple of Diana, or Artemis, uh, as the Greeks uh, referred to her. She was the goddess, the Greek goddess of fertility. Uh, And the temple of Diana uh, was so big and so magnificent, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had apparently 127 pillars, uh, 60 feet high, uh, surrounding the temple of itself. In front of it was a massive statue uh, of Diana, which uh, is uh, referenced, incidentally, um, in, if I can find the verse... Um, verse 35 when the the city clerk referred to the image which fell down from Zeus. Uh, It it is believed that that was uh, a a meteorite which history sort of records that came down and there was a rock uh, and they carved it into this image of Diana. Uh, and they placed it big in front of the temple uh, of Diana. Uh, and so there was this massive statue between the, in front of this glorious uh, pillar. Uh, and because she was the goddess of fertility, um, the worship of Diana uh, was full of uh, sexual immorality. The, the temple had uh, priestesses that were prostitutes. Uh, and so it was a very sort of immoral, licentious, uh, religious culture that existed... Uh, And people uh, traveled from all around the empire to come to Ephesus to worship uh, the goddess Diana. In fact, it is supposed that uh, Diana was the most popular and most worshipped of the Greek gods uh, at that time. There are more shrines to Diana that have been found throughout the Roman Empire than any other of the Greek gods. Uh, And so this was a big, big deal. Uh, And so then, There were these people, the silversmiths, who would make 
these silver statues of Diana. And these silver statues were used in the worship of Diana and were used for people who worshipped Diana to take home. And so people would travel from all around. They would come to Ephesus and they would buy these uh, silver uh, statues of Diana. They'd take them to the temple. They'd offer them in worship. They'd buy a few more. They'd take them home. They'd give them to their family and friends. They'd keep them in their house so they could worship at home. Uh, And so this uh, industry, the idol-making industry, the silversmith industry that made the idols was a very prominent and very lucrative industry there in the city of Ephesus. Uh, It was a very significant part uh, of the Ephesian economy. Uh, And so, with that being said, we get the picture about what's happening here. After two years of fruitful ministry in which many people have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, a wonderful and glorious thing, Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ had such an impact on so many people's lives. Business in the silversmith industry had plummeted. Why? Because people were no longer buying the idols. Why? Because they were no longer worshipping Diana. Why? Because they were now worshipping Jesus. And so many people came to faith in Christ that the industry uh, chief, Demetrius, began to panic. We're losing all our trade. Our profits are being wiped out. What is going on? Uh, And so that's what he says then in verse 26. He calls all the men together, everyone involved in that industry of producing these idols. uh, And he says, men, you know that we have this prosperity by uh, our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Hmm, I wonder why Paul would have said that. They are not gods which are made with hands. Why? Well, because they're pieces of silver made with hands. Verse 27, so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificent destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, one thing about this chap Demetrius is he was very good at his job. That is very, very clear. He's a bit of a politician. And if you thought political correctness was a modern invention, uh, you're way off the mark. Because notice how Demetrius presents his case to the people. He says, firstly, that our trade is falling into disrepute. We're getting a bad reputation. Oh dear, are we really getting a bad reputation? The temple is being despised. Oh, no, we like the temple. It's being despised. Oh, that's not good. The magnificence of Diana is being destroyed. Oh, no, this is awful. This is terrible. We've got to do something about this. You see, he said all the right things. He pushed all the right buttons. But the bottom line was, it was all about the money. It was all about the money. But in order to get what he wanted... He had to get the people on side and he knew what to say. I'm out here for you, for this city, for this reputation. I'm on your side. Oh, yes, that all sounds very good. So now I have the ability to push through my agenda. 
Does that happen today? Happens all the time, doesn't it? It's politics 101. Tell the people what they want to hear. Get them on side. Get them to trust you. Get them to believe in you. And then you can do whatever you want. But whatever you do, don't tell the truth. Goodness me. See, Demetrius, he knew what he was doing. And he whipped everyone up into a frenzy. And he was very successful, as we'll see in verse 28. But just a more general point here before we move on. The society, the culture in Ephesus was dramatically impacted and changed. And that impact and change didn't come from the top down. It didn't come from politicians or laws or government. It came about through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we can all look out on our society and the world out there, and we can all see things that are not good, the the immorality, the rejection of God. We look at things that the government are doing and the laws that they're passing and the culture that is developing and the things that have been changing. And it's easy to think, well, we need a new government. You know, they need to change. They need to start changing laws. They need to start doing this. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for politics, and God has his people uh, in politics, uh, and we are to pray for them. And the government has a responsibility before God, and one day our political leaders will answer before God for the decisions that they make. And Scripture commands us to pray uh, for them. Uh, And we live in an apparently democratic society, uh, and so we have opportunity uh, to contribute uh, publicly uh, to the things that are going on. And I think we should do that and take that opportunity, and that's important. But if we think that the hope of our nation lies in the hands of our government, then we're very much barking at the wrong tree. The hope of our nation lies only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the most significant and lasting change that will take place in a society will not happen through legislation which can modify behavior but can't change hearts. But it happens person by person, life by life, through the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus. Because when a person comes to saving faith in Christ, God begins to do a work in their hearts and lives. Things begin to change. Oh, sure, we're not perfect. We're not per- certainly not perfect from day one. We'll never be perfect. But God begins to work in us. And our desires begin to change. And what we want to do begins to change. How we live our lives begin to change. As we realize and decide that we want to live for the Lord. And not live for ourselves. And so I no longer do the things that I used to do. You know, I dread to think how much money I spent on alcohol years ago. I'd I'd probably be retired right now. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, today, I I look and just think, you know, I mean, gosh, you spend 100 quid on a night out. I mean, where do people get the money? It's like crazy. 
But, but I, I, I no longer go to the clubs and the bars. They've lost my custom. And wouldn't it be quite amazing if there was such a move of God in our city in this day that the clubs down Queen Street and St. Mary Street on a Friday and Saturday night were closing down because nobody was going. Because the passing pleasures of this world and the deceitfulness of sin was so real in people's lives, they would rather worship the Lord, spend time with their family, spend time in prayer, spend time in Bible studies, then go out doing all that stuff. That's what happened in Ephesus. People's lives were changed and transformed because people were coming to faith in Christ. Not because of political action, not because of political campaigning, not because of picketing and protesting and all those things. And there's a time and a place. But because of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the primary focus of the church. There's a time to be engaged in politics in the right way and at the right time. But the primary focus of the church has to be, must be, the proclamation of the gospel. The kingdom of God advances one soul at a time. And if our society and nation is going to change and transform, it's going to be from the bottom up. It's not going to be from the top down. Our focus and our burden and our passion has to be the proclamation of the gospel to this city, to our nation. So, moving on. Verse 28. We've looked at the causes of the riot, and essentially it was the gospel and the changing lives of the people who had come to save and faith in Christ. Secondly, we want to notice a few characteristics of the riot as it begins now in verse 28. Notice verse 28. When they heard this, that is the crowds, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theatre with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, they were Paul's travel companions. Now, the first thing we see is that the crowd got angry. That's what Demetrius wanted. He wanted to rowl the crowd. The crowd got angry. Verse 28. And have you ever noticed how some people who don't even believe in God can get very angry when you start talking about the things of God and particularly about Jesus? Isn't that interesting? I've always wondered, I mean, you don't even believe in God, so why do you care? <laughs> you know, it's all a load of nonsense. But yet people, they can get so angry. And you think, why is that? You know, why do people care so much about something that they say they don't care about? Well, the gospel makes people angry. It does. And I think the reason for that is because the gospel the gospel confronts people with their sin. 
The gospel makes demands upon their lives. If the gospel is true, they are wrong about everything. That's why you find so many academics in university getting very angry and hostile. It's pride. If the gospel is true, my whole career has been a waste of time. Who can, who can admit that? But it's pride. And people don't like having their sin exposed. People don't like admitting that they are wrong. And so people can respond and they can get angry. And that's what happens. And that's what we see here. They were, they were angry. Now, the second thing, uh, interestingly, is that they were not only angry, but they were confused. Verse 29, the whole city was filled with confusion. And they rushed into the theater uh, with one accord. Having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling uh, companions. And so the mob, they'd, seized, they'd taken two believers, two of Paul's companions, Gaius and Aristarchus, they brought them into the theater in Ephesus, which is a big theater. Uh, the ruins are still uh, there today. Uh, the theater would have seated 25,000 people. This was a massive uh, venue, the biggest uh, in Ephesus, and the massive crowd. They seized these two believers. They brought them uh, into the theater. They were angry, uh, but they were also uh, confused. Uh, and when Paul heard about it, Paul wanted to go in. Now, remember, Paul was kind of the root cause of all this on a human level. And so there's a massive riot. They've seized two believers. And what does Paul say? Oh, I'll go. That sounds fun. But, verse 30, the disciples wouldn't allow him. Uh, but he still wanted to go, apparently. Then some of the officials of Asia, Asia, who were his friends, he seemed to have developed friends in high places, uh, they sent to him pleading that he would not go to the theater. Uh, and so Paul ended up not going. Uh, to the theater uh, but what happened there in verse 32 some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly was confused and notice and this is i think uh, a little bit of humor on luke's part but it's so true most of them did not know why they had come together <laughs> and so you've got this big mob this big riot they all get whipped up into a frenzy by this Demetrius who's really kind of said the right things and pushed the right buttons. They're all, yeah, yeah, we're on your side. Yeah, come on, let's go. Hang on a second, what are we doing? Why are we here? What's this about? And I tell you, that happens all the time. Gosh, you see all these protests and stuff that go on. I mean, you kind of YouTube a few videos. There's these people that go around with people in protest asking them why they're protesting. And they're there protesting. So, yeah, what do you think about this issue? Um, well... Uh, you know, it's unbelievable how people put themselves gung-ho into something they haven't got a clue about. They don't understand it. It's amazing. And that's precisely what happened here. Everyone got whipped into this frenzy and they're all there. You know, and they start saying, hey, second, what are we doing? Are we? Oh, who cares? Yeah, you know, and I go for it. It's unbelievable. It's like this kind of herd uh, mentality. Uh, but anyhow, they were angry, they were confused, uh, and then thirdly, they, they were closed-minded. And this is kind of, I suppose, the more serious thing. Take a look at verse 33. The crowd then, they drew Alexander out of the multitude, 
the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense uh, to the people. Now, this Alexander, we're told, was a Jew. Uh, It's assumed by most commentators that he, he wasn't a Christian, but they just sort of lumped him in with the Christians because he was Jewish and Paul was Jewish and so... Uh, and so the Jews then put him forward, basically, probably to say, hang on a second, we're not Christians, we're Jews, we're not, this has nothing to do with us. You know, and what did they do then in verse 34 when they found out he was a Jew? We don't care. You know, we're here, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. And they cried that out, chanted that for two hours. Can you imagine two hours? I mean, who sits there and just chants for two hours? Any football fans? <laughs> you kind of look at that and you think, gosh, that's crazy. They're chanting for Diana. Gosh, what? That's just so weird. Who does that? Glory, glory, man united. <laughs> a lot of people do. You know, football's often, I mean, up in Manchester, they always refer to football as a religion. You know, and, the, and, and Old Trafford is the temple that they go worship at every week. You know, we kind of think, oh, well, football. And we, of course we can enjoy football, and I enjoy football, and, and we enjoy that, and that's sort of fine. But for a lot of people, that really is, you know, what their life is about. And, and that is even how they view it. They go to Old Trafford each week or wherever it is, and they go to worship the God of football. You know, and so this kind of thing, this isn't, just something 2,000 years ago, kind of this weird kind of cultic religion of Diana. This is the heart of man. And the heart of man will find an object for worship. And so, they were not interested in listening to anybody. And by the way, that's another interesting, (laughs) another interesting thing when it comes to um, people like this. Um, this is quite prevalent today. You know, you see people getting quite passionate about their cause or whatever, and you sit and you think, okay, well, well, let's just talk about it. Well, no, there's nothing to talk about. I'm right, you're wrong. That's it. There's no discussion. It's very much the spirit of this of the age. You know, there's an agenda. Like Demetrius had an agenda, whip the crowd into a frenzy. They all go gung ho for it. Half of them haven't got a clue what they're doing or what the arguments are or what their reasons are, but they don't care. They're going for it anyway. And you try and have a conversation with them, and they're not interested. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to deal with people uh, like that. And it's a reminder of that, really, when it comes to spiritual things especially, it's a reminder of the power of sin, you know, over people's lives. You know, that we're in a day and age people don't even want to discuss truth. You know, it's not up for debate. You know, we have our own views, we have our own agenda, and that's it, and we're not even going to talk about it. And if you're going to talk about it, we need to silence you. In fact, we need to change laws so we can put you in prison. It's happening today. And so, so we see this crowd, they, they were angry, they were confused, they were closed-minded. And then finally, and this is where we wrap it up, beginning in uh, verse 35, the city clerk comes out, and he's another good politician, as we'll see uh, in this final uh, section. The city clerk, 
uh, was kind of like the mayor, uh, if you like, of, of Ephesus. He, he would have been the guy that was politically responsible for the city uh, to the Roman government. Uh, and so this was a big thing for him. Um, so notice in verse 35, when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the temple of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who were neither robbers, nor, uh, robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Uh, but if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now the city clerk here was in a very difficult position. Because the one thing that Rome did not tolerate was riots, was uprisings, was disorder. It's all about the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. You all had to, you all knew your role, you had to stay calm, no rioting. And it was the responsibility of the political uh, rulers in each region to keep their people uh, out of trouble. Uh, and so here, this big riot starts, and we're talking thousands of people, and word's going to get around. This is a problem. Uh, and the guy with his head on the block, quite literally, uh, is this poor city clerk who's thinking, hang on a second, if, news, if this doesn't calm down quickly, and if news gets out, I'm in big trouble. Because he was the one that would be held accountable by Rome, and to be held accountable by Rome was literally death. And so he had to do something. Uh, and he shows what a skilled politician he is, actually. He's very, uh, very clever. Uh, first, he, tells the cr he lets the crowd uh, calm down a little bit. Uh, and then, verse 35, he intervenes. Calm down, calm down. And the first thing then he says to the crowd is a declaration of how great Diana is. He's cut from the same cloth as Demetrius. Men of Ephesus... What man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, these things, they cannot be denied. So you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So what's he saying to them? He's like, look, I mean, D Diana is the real deal. Nobody's questioning that. Don't worry him because Diana is the real deal. I mean, you know, nothing can be done, so don't worry about it. Diana's going to be okay. Really? <laughs> How many people worship Diana today? Nobody. Diana's gone and long gone. Why? Because false gods all have expiry dates. They last for a while, tick along, then they're done. And notice the man's pitting the worship of Diana against the worship of Jesus. And he says, the truth of Diana cannot be denied. Diana will live forever. Hmm. How many people worship Jesus today? You see, false gods, they come. 
they go, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Absolutely. Then verse 37, he makes an interesting point actually. He says, you have brought these men here, but, but they're not robbers of temples, nor are they blasphemers of your goddess. Now, it's interesting. It tells us that Paul was a man of good reputation in Ephesus. And it also tells us that Paul didn't make it his priority to attack Diana. He made his, his priority to preach Jesus. And he let Jesus take care of Diana. I think sometimes we can get the wrong end of the stick. We can start campaigning vociferously against all the immorality in society. When really what we should be focusing on is preaching Jesus and letting Jesus take care of the immorality in society. Oftentimes we can put the cart before the horse and make enemies unnecessarily. And so Paul was apparently a man of good reputation. Uh, and so, what were they to do? If you've got a problem, he says, there are courts. If, you're, if they're doing something wrong, if you're losing out on your profits, if your business is suffering by something that's against the law, take him to court. That's what you do. We've got courts for that kind of thing. We've got judges. They'll take care of it. But you've got to stop rioting because if you don't stop rioting, somebody's going to tell the emperor and he's going to send an army and we're all going to be dead. Basically, what he says. And so, when he said those things, he dismissed the assembly and they all went home. End of riot. Now, closing thought. Remember Paul. Paul hasn't really been in this narrative at all. He, he was the, at the heart of the cause of all of this. And then when they all gathered and they grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus and they, were, they had him in the temple and the riot was ensuing and Paul wanted to go. And everyone's like, Paul, no, don't go. And he didn't go. I imagine Paul was thinking, so I, I, I'm, I'm going to sort this out. I'm going to save Gaius and Aristarchus. You know, I, I'm going to put this right. Uh, I'm going to take care of it. And everyone's like, no, 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 Paul, don't go, don't go. So he didn't go. And you know what? Paul didn't need to go. Paul didn't need to solve the problem. He didn't have to do anything at all. Because God took care of the problem. And what we see here is God protecting his church in the city of Ephesus. And doing it through the natural course of things in the city. An unbelieving city clerk was the instrument God used to quell the riot, the anger against the Christians, and to let everybody get on living their lives. And so this is our closing thought here. And we end really where we began. That when we commit to serving our lives, when we commit to serving the Lord with our lives, when we commit to taking seriously the truths of the gospel, taking seriously the lives that God has called us to live, there will be opposition. It'll come from all sorts of places. We know that. We can expect that. But just as God had his hand on those believers there in the city of Ephesus, so he has his hand on us. 
And oftentimes the circumstances of life can make us fearful. It's uncomfortable, we don't like it, we hate it, and that's normal. We all have those feelings, we all feel those things when circumstances can get crazy. And sometimes things can seem too hard. And sometimes it's often when we commit afresh to serving the Lord. Oh Lord, I'm, gonna, I'm excited, I'm going to commit afresh to serving you, and all of a sudden everything goes wrong. That's because we're in a battle. And when God's people stand up and say, I'm going to go out and serve the Lord, Satan stands up and says, I'm going to come out and I'm going to oppose you. But we are called not to surrender, but we are called to fight unto victory. And I think the lesson here is whatever opposition comes our way, in whatever form it comes, God is with us. He will keep us, he will strengthen us, he will enable us to come through it. To come through it in a way that strengthens our hearts and causes us to grow in the knowledge of God and in a way that ultimately will bring uh, him glory. And so don't be afraid. Don't be fearful of the circumstances of the people, of the things of this life. But commit your heart fully to serving the Lord. To be obedient to him, even in things that seem scary. There are always things that seem scary. For the Lord is with you. His blessing will be upon you. His power is in you through the Holy Spirit. And we are to fight the battles. Not give up. Press on knowing that we are fighting from the point of victory because Christ has already conquered sin, death, and Satan. What Jesus has done on the cross is sufficient. The power that he supplies is sufficient. And when we commit our lives to serving him, not only does the blessing of God abide upon us. But God then enables us to be a blessing to others. So often we think it's all about me. If we just stop thinking it's all about me, maybe we'll be more of a blessing to everybody else. And I need ble- I need to be blessed. I need you to bless me. Okay, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> And I hope and pray that the Lord helps me and enables me to be a blessing to you. And we need to be a blessing to one another, particularly in difficult times. Now, there's a few in our fellowship that are going through some difficult times at the minute. And they need our help and our support and our prayers. They need us to be a blessing to them. So let us do that. Let us do that, to be an encouragement, to build one another up, and to do so for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your word uh, today. We thank you that your word is, is so encouraging. We thank you that your word truly, Lord, speaks to us in a, in a timely way. Lord, help us by your spirit to, 
put into practice the things that you have spoken to us today. And Lord, and we recognize that for some here, maybe that's going to be hard. Maybe there's some opposition. Maybe it's from without, maybe it's from within. Father, I pray by your power of your spirit that you would strengthen your people this morning and that you would enable each and every one of us, whoever we are, wherever we're from, Lord, whatever we're going through, to press on, to fight the good fight, Lord, to finish the race, to keep the faith, to go forward in victory. Help us strengthen us, we pray. Help us to do so that we may be an encouragement to others. Help us to do so so that we may be a witness, Lord, to this world. Help us to do so that we may bring glory to your name. Father, we thank you and we give you praise. Bless your word to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.